Welcome to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from the Rural Health Information Hub. My name is Andrew Nelson, and in this podcast, we'll be talking with a variety of experts about providing rural health care, problems they've encountered, and ways in which those problems can be solved. This is part two of a three-part series about transportation in rural America. Today I'm talking to two people who are involved in developing the New Hampshire Mobility Management Network. Elisa Dresba, the Director of New Hampshire Office of Rural Health and Primary Care, and Steve Workman, Director of Transport New Hampshire. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Steve, I'll start off by asking you this. What problems was this mobility management network created in order to address? Sure. I think I'd start with um, what is mobility management? It's it's a term that's been out there for quite a while. It's been implemented throughout the country, uh, but it's really about coordination of transportation options, and it's supposed to be user-centered. So in other words, let's create a system for people that actually meets their needs and, and where they're at. So in New Hampshire, uh, we separate our state into transportation regions. And so what we decided would be effective was to assign a mobility manager to each region who could focus on pulling together what we call community transportation services. And those services um, in the transportation world are often referred to as 5310 funded services. And this serves older uh, adults, and it also serves people who are living with various disabilities. And so this creates um, an opportunity to focus in on their needs and to build out the system. While we do that, it also incorporates other modes. So when you think public transit, which might be buses or trains in other parts of the country, that's part of the equation as well. Walking and biking facilities, those are part of the equation. So it's the idea is to use whatever options will work for a consumer to help them live their best life, whether that's medical appointments, whether that is social interactions, whether that's getting to a job or other services they need. Can you each tell us about your role in the process up to this point and and going forward? Sure. So my role uh, in my capacity is is statewide director. I work across all kinds of um, agencies, um, transportation agencies, um, different providers. And then I also intersect with our state and federal um, government components. And so my role for this project is I serve on our state coordinating council for community transportation. And uh, at that level, we are really focused on coordinating services. Um, There's a federal model for this that I think a lot of your folks may be familiar with, and it's called CCAM. So it's the Coordinating Council on Access and Mobility. So it was actually created by the federal government by executive order in 2004. But its, its goal is to bring all the different federal agencies that fund in some way transportation. And it says, we need you all to work together. So we don't want to duplicate resources. We want to be innovative um, and we think we can do this better. So in New Hampshire, our state coordinating council is really a state model for CCAM. And so we're going to, we've started a new level with that. Um, you know, we were incorporated about 10 years ago, the, the, the SCC. 
And now we've got to a point where we're actually able to build out a more sophisticated network. Um, so in my capacity, I was asked to help facilitate that process. So we've been working on that for just about two years. I think, um, you know, it, take, it takes a lot of work to move these, these projects, to bring everybody together, to get them to understand how we can work between sectors and, and things. And we're now at a point where we have adopted our blueprint and we are moving finally into implementation. You know, there, it's very unusual to talk about health systems and the health of communities and not have transportation come up, whether it's directly related to patient access or to workforce, or generally as an economic driver uh, or related to social isolation issues and things. Um, and I think that we saw that really come to a head during the pandemic. A lot of us have been very aware of the gaps, but having those access issues related to testing and mitigation and vaccine efforts um, really highlighted that. And so, I had started um, participating, really just listening to those SEC meetings each month um, and really starting to sort of get a sense of what was happening in New Hampshire, what the structure was, um, and looking for opportunities. And, and every project I've ever done uh, in my work with the Office of Rural Health has been through partnerships and collaboration. And we really try as an office to respond to the needs of the community, not tell them what to do. So we often look at our funding sources and try and say, is there something that we could bring as a resource either through staff expertise, data, or actual funding that would help this program launch. And so as the Mobility Manager Network developed and I followed along um, in uh, April of 2021, the state of New Hampshire and every state in the country was sent CDC funds for COVID disparity with a uh, carve out for rural. And so this project really seemed to align with that carve out. And so we decided to work together to figure out if, if it made sense, if it made um, sense timing wise and expansion wise and expectations on these regions as they launched. And so our opportunity initially was with the mobility manager position itself. Uh, the uh, federal transportation funds and state funds were funding the project uh, position at a halftime level. And so the first thing we talked about was whether it would be helpful to fund that as a full benefited position to really be able to have one full FTE uh, devoted to launching this idea of a mobility manager and everyone agreed that was a great idea so we started with that and along the way we also developed some project funding for each of the regions but also some state level capacity so there'll be one statewide um, contract in addition to the five regional contracts that we will put out that um, will be very focused on coordinating and supporting those regions coordinating the network as it comes together and really focusing on um, assessing transportation needs and also perception by the public. We really want to understand what's happening in the regions and what people who are either consuming transportation or aren't even aware and could possibly make uh, take advantage of those resources think about that so that we can focus on doing some education around that. And we have a number of other, uh, we think, sustainable projects around making sure that people know how to access resources and what's available um, by region. And so we'll be building up some of that work as well. So it, it really, you know, um, like I said, it dovetailed beautifully with this grant opportunity. We don't often get to be really creative <laughs> with the work that we do. We, we focus a lot of energy on health systems, which is completely appropriate, but everyone knows that, you know, social determinants are very, very critical and transportation is a huge one um, that also then aligns with some of those other determinants. And so we were really excited to be able to make an investment in transportation uh, in a very well thought out project with incredibly passionate committed 
needed partners. Um, so it was really sort of a, a, a perfect um, storm for us as far as the project goes. Sure. Doubling back a little bit, were there were there any specific things you saw, Steve, um, that kind of that made you aware of the importance of developing a network like this? Um, yes, there were. Uh, one of the things, and this is reflected nationally, so it's not just about New Hampshire, is um, all of the different sectors that have any intersection with transportation started doing needs assessment. And often the number one issue or within, let's say the top five was transportation. And it was typically what it showed was there were a great many barriers. Um, and I think more so our rural um, agencies had more substantial barriers as well. And so we saw that there was a need to start addressing this and it doesn't make sense to solve a problem when half the players aren't talking to each other. So, as each agency in New Hampshire, for example, each state agency started to realize that transportation was a big issue and they had a small piece of it, or perhaps they actually had no idea sort of how it operated in, in our world, uh, they started to see the need to reach out. At the same time, we positioned ourselves to try to be more open, to understand the needs of the different providers out there who rely on transportation services that our providers um, handle. So. Again, I think that's reflected nationwide. You hear those stories, but what you need to have is a deliberate um, system put together to actually start doing this. Can you just um, share with share with us how a mobility management approach can be useful in meeting the transportation needs of, of rural folks in your state? Sure. So I, I also want to talk about another one of our federal partners that has contributed significantly to, to our own development work in New Hampshire, and that's the National Center for Mobility Management. Um, our state has worked extensively with Judy Shanley uh, and to learn about uh, mobility management. They, they are funded through FTA and they are sort of an authority on, on what works for mobility uh, management across the country. So in working with them, we were able to start to understand and explore the fundamentals of it. And then as our plan took shape, we started to see the areas that were deficient in planning. So we're actually working with NCMM right now to address things like long-term sustainability and mobility management, and also performance indicators. Um, as we all know, funding and policy decisions are driven by data. If we do not have meaningful data, we are not going to be able to make the case for, for changes in funding or policy. So I think uh, mobility management has an eye toward that, but at the end of the day, it's really about coming together in coordination. So I, I talk about it as being completely human-centered. So uh, I told you I'd talk about process. So I think we have to understand that when you ask people to come together, to work together from different sectors, we have to get through a lot of sort of human stuff. We have to understand what the other party is talking about, what's going to be asked of us, and we have to develop a level of trust and a working relationship. And mobility management really is about that. It convenes people, it talks about the issues, and it shows us a path forward for how we could coordinate while still retaining our individuality, if you will, so how we're delivering our different services. 
then on a, on a more logistical level, mobility management really starts to delve into things about opportunities for braided funding. And this is why this project uh, with Elisa is, is so key because it's a perfect example of it. We have a federal state um, funding pots that are supporting this project and come together. That's an example of braided funding. Those opportunities exist. And I think it's important, again, getting back to the trust and the human element, you have to have a serious conversation around how braiding these fundings is actually increasing your capacity and not taking something away from your organization. And I think it's fair to say we need to work carefully through those um, type of issues because uh, this is really about getting people to rides. I mean, folks like us, you know, really get caught up in, in how we're going to build the system and, and the policies to support it. But at the end of the day, our, our users, it's about living their life. So <clears throat> we try to make it easy for them. Um, many of our vo most vulnerable users are already dealing with significant life issues. They don't need to suddenly be tasked with figuring out a complete maze of transportation services out there. So a good mobility management program is going to have a, a searchable database where you have all these options and will have already worked out how those agencies work together to deliver for the consumer. Yeah, no, I mean, like, how often do you come across a project that um, just really is is built the way that you would hope it would be built, the way that you would build it if you if it was your project as well? And um, I think to Steve's point, like the level of trust, you know, so when I came in, everybody was really, really open. They didn't know me, but they were very open to hearing what I had to talk about. And I think that, you know, over the months of conversations with both the SEC members and the leadership, you know, we really understood that we were all about the people and we were all very passionate about the ultimate goal, but that you know, we also understood the importance and of clarity with all of the process, uh, understanding process, understanding scope, understanding responsibility and roles. And so they already had that open culture of communication established before I got there. So it was really easy for me to sort of like um, show up <laughs> and talk and then ask them for feedback and then to try and incorporate that feedback and to show them, I heard you, you know, we, we've adjusted in this way where we're, we are able to be flexible in this way. We can't be flexible in that way, but that, you know, that's what I was really there for um, was to really support the work that they had already done. And I, I want to add to that to actually stress how valuable it was. Uh, Elisa brought a knowledge and skill set to this project that we, quite frankly, didn't have at that point. So I know for me, as I was sort of navigating the transportation side and the mechanics of the plan, um, I couldn't necessarily think. I knew that we had to connect with these other agencies, but I couldn't necessarily think through how we had to do that. So it really is essential for this to be effective is to have key partners who do have expertise and then they can operate and we can we can really work together for that. And that's that's what's made this project so incredibly exciting and enjoyable for me. Yeah, it's great to great to have uh, kind of complementary people on your team. What opportunities uh, do you think this is the New Hampshire Mobility Management Network is going to offer uh, specifically to sort of improve healthcare access and population health. What's that going to look like? <laughs> That's a great question. So I think that, um, you know, what we want to do is we want to create 
awareness of what exists and we want to also help people understand how that system currently operates and how it's funded and i think that that what that does is it sets the foundation for having conversations about gaps and what can be done to ameliorate that i think that you know from a health perspective we have a tremendous amount of different social and um, health service agencies operating in rural new hampshire who are all solving this problem themselves um, and I don't think it's because they're try they're not trying to collaborate, but I think it's very difficult sometimes when you have a person in need immediately in front of you, in many, many cases, you want to spend a lot of energy meeting that person's needs. And often you don't have the resources or capacity to talk about being proactive in meeting many needs in one coordinated fashion. And so I think that this project really sets a model for that. It creates some partnerships and some relationships that I think exist beyond this project project, um, but also will allow us to have those additional conversations. Um, I think that sometimes having people in different agencies that are aware of what's happening, I know this happens a lot for me as state office person, I will hear about a hospital considering something and then a different hospital considering something and I'll bring them together um, so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so sometimes people just need those dedicated staff to have the conversations, to write the things down, to send them out in an email, to set up the next meeting, like all of that nuts and bolts logistical kind of stuff, and to really, you know, help facilitate those conversations. So I see a lot on the health side of lasting impact. The other thing that we've asked from these regions is that each of them participate in at least one project that collaborates with their local public health network. We have centralized public health here in New Hampshire, so it's all happening mostly in the building I'm sitting in. Um, and then we have these uh, community level agencies who are our funded public health networks. And so this will help strengthen partnerships that exist or perhaps create ones that don't to really think about it. I just think that transportation and health have um, any version of health that you use, any definition of health, they have so much in common and there's so much that could be gained by them leveraging their expertise and their funding. And so bringing these people to the same table, even if it's for one specific project with a, a specific timeline, I think really will um, set the tone and foundation for future conversations. I can't think of a single place that this doesn't touch um, you know, throughout our agencies. If we really want to think about advancing the health and well-being of our residents, then that's the level of conversation that we really need to be at. And, you know, I, I think a lot of, of um, your folks, Andrew, are going to appreciate something even more basic about this. Think about the cost of missed healthcare appointments. So there's a vested interest right there within the medical provider world and the transportation provider world. We have an opportunity to decrease that. that that's just one small piece. And that makes economic sense for everybody. So a better delivery of service. The other thing that excites me about this uh, is I, I told you that from our transportation perspective, we are sort of in that 5310 community transportation services. So older adults um, and other vulnerable populations. But I very much believe in a rising tide concept. So if we are tightening up the system, expanding conversations, working better across government sectors, we are gonna create a transportation system that is going to be more effective and is then going to be more accessible down the road to what I would call folks that have a choice. Um, they don't need to be car dependent. Um, they can drive if they want to, but they would opt for using these services more. You have more folks using the service. 
the service is going to be more sustainable. So you can see how even though we're focused right here for this period of time on um, public health disparities and how to get this off the ground, it has far-reaching implications. I also think I'd be remiss if I didn't go way back to how we even took these steps. So as I've had a chance to talk with my, my peers around the country, uh, they're very interested in what New Hampshire's doing and it really becomes like, I don't know where to begin. <clears throat> so let me address that a little bit. The first thing is that New Hampshire what, had a good system in place and that was our statewide coordinating council. So that was our state CCAM effort. So we were already trying to have those conversations with varying degrees of excess, uh, success up to this point. But as part of um, our work with New Hampshire DOT and then something in our state, which is our 10-year transportation plan, that plan gets reapproved every two years. So there's this comprehensive process that involves the governor of New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Executive Council, New Hampshire DOT and the legislature, and it goes through that. So during that process in the last cycle, um, we came together as providers and said, you know, we have some serious funding problems and a whole load of unmet needs. We know what the needs are, but we don't have the capacity to actually address them. Coordination became one of the, the key issues. Well, New Hampshire DOT heard that message and they found a way um, through federal funding streams, there are provisions that allow a transfer of funds amongst projects and they're, they're highly regulated, but there was an opportunity for us to transfer 2.2 million roughly per year to support some expanded community transportation and public transit services. So that ultimately was the seed money that Lisa talked about earlier, which was funding half-time positions and a statewide mobility manager housed at New Hampshire DOT. So that's the first thing, because the reality is you do need to have a little bit of money to support this. I, I think that incentive is required to bring folks to the table, but it's really hard to talk year after year about potential unless you're able to translate in, that into some concrete action. So once that got moving, uh, it's sort of the snowball and, and then enter Elisa and, and it just, it, it got, it got larger and larger. So that would be the, the takeaway for other folks trying to figure out how to do this is first, you have to convene and start having the process conversations, but then try to figure out how you can get some seed money. And then I think you're much better positioned to launch and then consider things about long-term sustainability because Lisa and I are really focused on, we've got some really good performance measures that we've outlined both for the CDC side of the funding, but also on the transportation side. We expect to have rich data that will help us make the case for why this is an effort that should be sustained long-term. Are there any other organizations you've been working with since you kind of started developing the mobility management network? Um, there are. So, you know, it has increased participation, especially within um, the Department of Health and Human Services in New Hampshire in general. So we've, we've done separate but related work. For example, we worked with uh, TANF counselors. Uh, their task is to get a lot of their users who are transitioning off public assistance to get them to jobs and, and often they don't have the capacity to own a car. So we started having conversations about that, then enter the, the division of, of public health where this funding and we're able to do that. So that has definitely expanded. 
Um, I could say more about other statewide agencies that are helping to feed the process and getting interested in this, uh, but I also want to talk about the federal level. Um, FTA or the Federal Transit Authority is is um, watching what we're doing in New Hampshire, and they are very much excited um, by that, as well as our our regional DHHS. Uh, they're looking at this as a test project and a model that may work for other parts of the country. Uh, and we are actually on the, on the ground level, we are starting to do the work that those folks have been trying to get us to do for quite a long time. So they, you know, they're constantly getting updates on this and, and meeting with us and, and giving, so we get their expertise, we get their insight about funding and potential flexibility around funding streams. And as I already said, we're working with the National Center for Mobility Management. So it's, I went from being this, this standalone director of Transport New Hampshire to working with this network of people with expertise that blow me away. I've learned more in this process than perhaps I've even contributed to it, I think. So uh, the, it's out there and the folks at the federal level, I have seen nothing but a willingness to work with us. And I think that's important because transportation has been very mechanical. So we, the way the CDC funding worked was sort of different than normal grants. So normally you would get some sort of funding opportunity announcement, you would respond to it, you would have this fully fleshed out plan or pretty close and evaluation and measures and things like that. And then you would submit and hear back and get your notice of award. Well, the CDC needed to get this funding out uh, as soon as possible. So instead they told the states, you know, here's how much you're getting, we need to work plan and a budget, we'll figure out performance measures and, and things like that later on. So we sort of had to, as a division, tee everything up and submit it. So I had just enough to kind of like lay out a basic net, um, framework for this particular project. But after we got the funding, we ended up having a Zoom call with them and the SEC leadership to sort of tell them about our project and, and just get their thoughts on the project. Um, and then any ideas they had about resources, existing performance measures or things that we could kind of look into. And so that's been really helpful. And, um, you know, as, as Steve was saying, they were they were just really interested in the fact that we were going to try and do this and really supportive of it. They weren't um, prescriptive about it in any way. Um, and they were very, they're curious and they want to, they want to keep in touch and hear how it sort of, um, you know, progresses out. So I think that that has been exciting as well. I know working with HRSA, particularly with the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, which, um, you know, we're funded by as an entity and they fund a tremendous amount of community work. They've always been super collaborative and very interested in innovation and pilot and, and, and sustainability and things like that. And so I think culturally, I've been working under that for a really long time, but I recognize that many other federal agencies are not like that. Um, so it is great to hear that they're open to that and that we can develop that kind of culture with other federal uh, funding partners. And, um, you know, there may be a point where we can bring HRSA in along with the CDC to some of these other very high level transportation conversations so that we can continue to work together and to literally be on the same page about strategic priorities and how those are going to align with what everyone's doing and how those are actually going to play out on a state and community level. Sure. Speaking of uh, existing health disparities, how has the pandemic affected those? <laughs> 
in every way you can think. So, um, so, you know, like I said earlier in this conversation, you know, we know that just generally, you know, never mind if you actually have any other kind of like social determinants issue, but just accessing care during the pandemic, whether it was specific to COVID symptoms testing or vaccine or whether just regular care, you know, that was incredibly challenging. Did telehealth stand up? Yes, it did. Do we all just realize how few broadband, um, you know, coverage areas we all have in our states? Some of us already knew, but yes, it became incredibly clear, both from an educational standpoint and a health standpoint. And so telehealth is a wonderful tool, don't get me wrong, but I think that what we wanna do with healthcare is what we wanna do with transportation, which is we want to uh, deliver options. And then we want the consumer or patient and the provider or clinician to decide what is the quality interaction that needs to take place? How can that be delivered? Okay, let's, if there's a choice around that, let's make a choice. And so having telehealth does not remove the need for people to travel and go and do things. Um, it, it's helpful, but you know, and then of course the outcomes for all of our folks who had chronic health complications layered on top of mental health issues, layered on top of uh, equity issues, uh, either around racial disparities or regional disparities in geography, those just became magnified um, to, to a very, very high extent. And we definitely, as a public health department, mobilized and we tried to literally meet people where they were, bring them the things. But once again, that is not the way that you address people's needs. Um, not everything can be addressed that way. And so I think that, you know, the using transportation as a way to tell a story that is really something that everybody can resonate with. I feel like everyone during this pandemic probably has a story about themselves or their family or someone they care about where access and transportation were an issue for them. Um, the same way that broadband has been, uh, you know, highlighted as a huge issue. Those stories and now with data are what are compelling policymakers and funders to make these investments to set aside this portion um, of funding and to then to allow the states and then hopefully the communities to use that in a way. Because we've been thinking about this for years, right? Um, I'm not saying we have all the answers, but we definitely had a lot of thoughts and ideas and um, we were just short on resources. So I'm really excited about having this infusion of resources, somewhat overwhelming at times um, to get out and to use, but to really be able to, to talk about what's happening talk about what our approach is and why we think that's our approach, and then to launch, evaluate, and continue those conversations. I agree. And on the transportation side, you know, the pandemic hit pretty hard. We were essential services, but, you know, one of the ways, and, and I suspect your, your rural states are going to key into this right away. In New Hampshire, our volunteer driver programs are part of this equation. Those are often small operations by faith communities or hospitals or, or senior centers sometimes will do it. Those networks exist throughout most states and they form this sort of patchwork. Well, a volunteer driver program, most of the volunteer drivers are older adults who also in the case of the pandemic turned out to be some of the highest vulnerable folks Therefore, you saw those programs shut down almost completely. Then you saw ridership issues, so our public transit buses, all of those things scaled. And, and I think we've all, we lived it. So we all, we all know how this all went, but that has significant impacts for the future. 
Um, we're fortunate that the, the federal government did pump out significant funds and a portion of those funds um, help support public transit and community transportation throughout the country. Uh, and that's great, but they were stopgap measures. They were filling in gaps in revenues. Um, you know, we fund transportation, federally, state, local money, charitable money, all of that took a hit when our world stopped working. So the agencies needed to be able to just maintain their existing capacity so that when we got through the initial phases of the pandemic, we would be ready to come back out. But then it raised a serious question. What about the folks that needed these services for life-saving procedures? I think of kidney dialysis. We couldn't stop. So what was great, and I, I heard this throughout the country, is our transportation providers stepped up to the front lines and they started being innovative. Um, and then they were left with understanding like, wow, we, we weren't quite prepared for this. So, you know, now New Hampshire and, and this, this project is going to help us do a better job of this. But in the transportation side of things, we are also studying the impacts and lessons learned with future recommendations. Because the next time we have a large long-term service interruption, I certainly hope it's not a pandemic again, but either way, a service interruption, we want to be better equipped to respond and I think that we're going to make significant progress just with this project and figuring that out for New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose uh, COVID-19 might have been the biggest one, but what are some of the other challenges that you will overcome in getting to the current stage of launching the network? So it definitely goes back to the processy, the, the, the human component. Um, I think every state, regardless of its size, and New Hampshire is relatively small, which has also helped us to attack this at a state level. Um, but I think that the through there there are different approaches taken throughout the state, uh, and I think what you first have to do is get people to listen, to understand what you're talking about, why they're coming forward assure them that this is part of a shared dialogue and not something that's going to be imposed on them sort of with a top-down approach, uh, and then bring them together to talk through this. So I know um, our our chair, longtime chair of the SCC, Fred Roberge, um, I believe uh, he, one of his best days chairing the SCC since inception was in the spring when we made a very difficult decision and it had to do with the initial DOT funding. So that funding, we knew that we had 550,000 to distribute amongst the regions, but we had to find an equitable thing. So we started with a typical funding appropriation formula for 5310, but what that did was that left a number of our regions with barely any money at all to hire. So everybody went back and and we had to make a shift. We know that when you're representing an agency, your primary job is to think about your agency, its longevity, sustainability, all of the, all of the things connected to that. But there's also a need for us to think about the big picture. And so folks had to come to grips with that di dynamic and decide, okay, if I give up some money that I could claim if we just use this formula piece and allow that money to fill in and make make whole or partially whole one of these other regions, we're, we're going to have a more effective system. We are going to get better capacity across the board. And 
we saw that happen in the spring during a, a vote. And it was probably the most contentious vote that the CD, uh, that the SEC had had to, to work through. But at the end of the day, we unanimously adopted an equitable distribution of that first pot of money. And that changed the game. People realized they were serious and people then had committed themselves to working together. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what are some of your long-term goals with the network? So long-term is, is really about sustainability. Um, and uh, this is a, a project I'm working on directly with the National Center for Mobility Management is how to sustain these mobility management networks. And right now we're, we're working with FTA and, and several other partners to draft a sustainability tool. We're calling it the Mobility Management Sustainability Self-Assessment Tool. And these, this is basically a tool that individual um, agencies or regions or even statewide could take to assess where they're at long term. So the specific tasks that we've outlined in this project all have an eye toward long term sustainability. So the sustainability tool, we've already incorporated that future tool that's not released yet. It's still being developed, but we've incorporated that into our network planning and requirements is that we're going to use that tool so that we can think through these issues. What it does is it breaks down our operation into different dimensions and it allows us to grade ourselves honestly on where we feel we fit at any point in time. And it's a simple level one through four grading system, four being you know the most sophisticated, if you will, one reflecting probably more of a startup or emerging um, system. So that will lead you through considering what challenges or outright threats may exist to your long-term sustainability. Um, if we don't keep this sustainable, then we really do run the risk of having done a lot of great work, spent a lot of money in two years, and, and things start to, to drift back to, to normal or go back to fragmenting. We are not prepared to do that. Um, so that's that's one of the key long term things is finding out a way to sustain the system itself. The other thing is to sort of change the conversation to get to get policymakers and residents alike to understand the role that these type of public um, transportation services um, can play in our communities, both our livability, our overall health, um, our economic well-being. Uh, and to talk about it in a different way than perhaps we have approached it in the past. So as we increase these partnerships, we're learning about the needs and the languages of different sectors. And then we're trying to see where that intersects with our language and needs so that we can continue to expand that, that overall capacity. Then there's, then there's just a ton of, uh, uh, you could go from there in terms of our, our long-term goals, but I think those are the broad ones. Are there any other things I haven't touched on that you want to, you want to talk about? No, I, I would just like to, to urge your, your listeners, take advantage of the resources that are out there. Contact your regional FTA offices. That is a perfect place to start when you're thinking about public transportation and community transportation systems. Engage them in a discussion. You may have opportunities that you just simply aren't aware of, and they can help facilitate that. Um, the other thing, I, I've mentioned the, the National Center for Mobility Management. Um, Judy Shanley and her peers, they are all about helping. That is their purpose for existence, is to help all of the different states do this. And they have resources that can help you think about how to get this started. 
and then, of course, New Hampshire remains willing to share our experiences if they can help anybody out in the state. So I'm certainly happy to to follow up with folks across the country to see whether we might have something that could help them. Uh, and I'm always interested in learning what uh, we could take back for New Hampshire. So that's my takeaway for listeners. And I, I would say the same thing from the rural health side, that if you're not engaging with your office of rural health and you're a transportation person or, or, or someone who is interested in a transportation project to engage with them. And I would say to the state offices, I'm a tiny state office um, and we've figured it out. So I don't think you have to have a tremendous amount of capacity or funding to at least dip your toe in. It's like so many other projects where you, you know, you can be at the table with your voice and your perspective um, for, for relatively little commitment. Um, and just encourage folks to, to sort of engage with this partnership. Um, and I think that there are probably a lot of HRSA-focused um, funding opportunities that could be used to advance these projects as well. And having that relationship with your state office who's, um, who's very well-versed in those funding opportunities, they can at least get you started, get you some data, um, and get you moving forward, connect you with some partners on the health and social service side if you don't have that, um, and at least launch and get you started. So I think, you know, at least develop a relationship between the transportation folks and the officer of health folks would be the first step. You've been listening to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from RHI Hub. Today we talked to Steve Workman, Director of Transport New Hampshire, and Elisa Dresba, the Director of the New Hampshire Office of Rural Health and Primary Care. Look in our show notes for more information about their work and visit ruralhealthinfo.org for all things pertaining to rural health. Join us next time for the final episode in our three-part series on transportation in rural America, here on Exploring Rural Health.